It is with great pleasure and an honor to welcome Derek Wolcott, Nobel Prize winning poet, to the bibliophile. My experience of Canada is colored by my parents' experience of leaving England to escape from the devastation of the Second World War. They both loved Canada because it rescued them from that awful environment. But I, I lived in England when I was younger. They took me from here when I was five, and I lived there until I was 12. And then I came back to Canada, and uh, I've never had that love of Canada, that deep-rooted sense of place that most Canadians would have. I, I have a love of England, and I have a sense that you may feel similarly about the place that you were born, St. Lucia. No, I think it may be quite the opposite. I didn't live in England. I haven't lived in England for any length of time. I've been there on very short visits, but I have been affected by the visits because what I saw of England and what I still see of England, a lot of it is through its poetry, through its uh, literature anyway. Well, that's everybody's experience, I guess. But I think particularly for me, uh, since I write in English and I've studied English and teach English literature, it's a kind of a homecoming. But in terms of feeling in any way physically that I could be at home there, I don't think I could really. I mean, it would have to be summer all year long for me to stay there, really. <laughs> you live in the United States, though. Yeah. And I've read that you you do feel, you've used the word mulatto. Yeah. Because you don't feel completely at home anywhere. Am I mistaken? Um, I have been through a lot of racial division and a lot of racial quarreling. This usual confrontational quarreling between black and white, say, but also some of the internecine quarreling between black and black, or black and light-skinned black, and seeing that kind of thing happening too. I think when I use the word, it's it's also for uh, the tint of one's skin, but also I think it's a mixture of aesthetics. In other words, the African aesthetic that is there in the Caribbean and the aesthetic of the empire or capital, the central cities, uh, English and African influence, French and African influence, which is pe peculiarly true of St. Lucia, French Creole, uh, language and English uh, modes of exchange. The principal language is supposed to be officially English, but the general language is really French Creole. I was in uh, Florida recently with my nine-year-old daughter. Right. We were walking on the beach, listening to the ocean, the tide coming in and going out. Don't do that. You're making me homesick. <laughs> no, well, I, live, I live above the sea, and the continual sound of the sea is part of my uh, existence. And if, um, I've written a poem about this, about uh, being somewhere and feeling this strange and very sudden silence, like an inaudible echo. And that was missing the sea, not hearing the sound of the sea. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to let you know. <laughs> is that what you're talking about? Yes, it's, uh, <coughs> what, it's, what I'm talking about is that sound. And I told my daughter, Dorothy, that it was God's breath breathing. And that whenever she was away from the sea, all she had to do was to listen to her own breathing. And that was God's breath inside of her. And that that's, came to me. That's very nicely put, yeah. It is the same sound. It's the same sound you get out of a shell, too. If you put a shell to your ear, 
you hear the same exhalation going on and yeah that's sort of a wave makes that kind of sound it's, yeah it's nice outside because this is what you say uh, you talk about the music of memory water and that it always abides in saint lucia in your latest work the prodigal you've created a sweeping yet intimate epic of an exhausted europe studded with church spires and mountains train stations and statuary a place where the new world is an idea a wavering map and where history subsumes the natural history of his unimportantly beautiful home island mm. so you do return to saint lucia for sustenance yeah, my house is there yeah i have a house overlooking it's very beautiful every morning i get up and i'm sort of astonished at the location of it i can see the sea and hear it it's facing another bay it's just in rain or sunshine it's just very beautiful so i'm blessed with that kind of daily benediction for me to go through the day with that in mind or to go to bed at night or just all this is very corny but it's very moving and it's very true you know some terrific sunsets mm. well i was down in uh, antigua about three months ago right and uh, it really struck home that that these people although they may be poor they know how to live they know how to live and they've got it it's a very relaxed peaceful slow moving joyful life uh, i mean maybe that's just the tourist seeing the patina but to me no, i think every, especially in the small islands i think every caribbean person from anywhere is always constantly aware of the sea and the traffic on the sea and the isolation and communication that the sea makes that the the rhythm of the sea affects it doesn't appear to affect daily life in the Caribbean. On the other hand, it does because people still go down to the beach or down to the wharf to get fish, old-fashioned thing, and the, the daily ritual of fishermen going out and that sort of thing. Uh, it used to be schooners that connected the islands. Now it's planes, but still, it's still the same feeling of, the same insular feeling uh, that you get because of the surrounding siege, if you want, of the sea. You mentioned the poetry of England, and one of my favorite poets is Ted Hughes. Yeah, I knew Ted. I heard when I heard that Ted had died when I was visiting Spain. I was in a house in Granada that was a part of the Lorca Foundation, and I found it very strange and moving that um, I was talking to his sister, not his sister, sorry, his niece or grandniece or something when someone came, come, came in and said that Ted had died. So I got up and I went out into the garden and kept quiet a little bit, thinking of him. He was a terrific guy, Ted, very badly abused by a lot of people because he, was, he had great gentleness. Mm -hmm. He was a very good friend of Seamus's too, you know. Mm -hmm. I didn't know him that well. But in fact, he took me to Buckingham Palace and I was going to get the Queen's Medal. And he kept reassuring me, you know, it's all right, you know. Don't be nervous. Don't be nervous, yes. I said, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> but well, was he was, the Poet Laureate at that time? Yes. Yeah. You knew him well, Ted? Didn't know him at all. At all? No. Oh, I thought you was mentioning that you did know him. I know his work. Oh, yeah. Right. I remember we talked about the fact that you know England through its poets and poetry. Yes, yes, yes. But <laughs> you would know them personally. I, yeah, I yeah. would... Uh, well, what Ted did about nature poetry is he really wrote the real thing. I mean, you know, all those lambs and calves, you know, jumping about in the landscape. Uh, he wrote about their being gutted or their being, having a difficult birth or the bad weather they would have to endure. He wrote real nature poetry. 
And he, well, he knew it too, didn't he? he knew uh, yes, it yeah, physically, because he lived yeah, it. He yes, lived it as a child. Yeah, yeah. So it yeah. wasn't sort of a sublime pastoral. It was very yeah. tough. Exactly. That's and I think the toughness of it makes it even more um, attractive in terms of the truth of it. Yeah, no, it, it really does come through. The fact when he was when he was young, he, he went out and hunted with his brother. Yeah. And as you say, cut the animals up and yeah. and, and caught them, snared them. And sometimes it can get a little, you know, loud in terms of the bluster. Sometimes, sometimes, yeah. but generally it's very authoritative. Yeah. And I wrote some, what I hope was very admiring, review of a collection of his once. It was very tough to take. I mean, like most deaths of anyone, you know. But his has been hard because it's a little early, I thought, you know. Yeah. That's really what I wanted to get at was yeah. that his life was a Greek tragedy. His first wife committed suicide. He had an affair that may have been the cause of that suicide. His second wife committed suicide, plus killing their child. The fact that he was able to survive all of that in the face of all sorts of criticism says a huge amount about him as a person. And I wonder if you've had to deal with tragedy like that in your life. No, I can't measure that. I can't. I mean, I think ultimately we're all capable of great heroics in terms of endurance. I think everybody's basically brave. Mothers, for example, you know, standard examples of endurance. Because their husbands leave them and... Well, my mother was a widow, for instance, you know, with three children, and her husband died when he was 31. She never remarried, and she brought us up, and she constantly held him up to us uh, in terms of her memory of him. So that I always felt that when I was writing, I was continuing, or painting, I was continuing work that my father did since he also painted and wrote. You're trying to live up to him? Well, maybe mentally, I think so, you know at least in terms of my duty, of what he did when he was sort of torn from developing what he might have done even more. So to carry on his work? <clears throat> yeah, that's what I felt, really, all the time. In Ted's case, though, one would think that he would, people would, uh, you know, go away from him as if he was some frightening kind of emblem. But women were attracted to him a great deal. I've seen that. I mean, I've seen women who I thought might be repelled by him going up to him and, you know, almost moth-like. Because <laughs> he was a very handsome guy. Yes. Staggering. Rugged. Yes, very. Big and rugged. Exactly, yeah. And combine that with a tenderness, it was great. Men liked him a lot. He was, yeah, he was man's man and also very attractive to women. Yes, yes. I mean, Seamus and he were very, very good friends, Seamus Heaney. Mm-hmm. I ask this of young poets in an amusing way. That is that uh, if you can't play a musical instrument, because most young men join a, a rock band to get laid, if you can't play a musical instrument, next best thing is you become a poet. You can get laid that way too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But it didn't really work just out in the oh. middle there. <laughs> that wasn't the intention. And the gap in age is enormous, so... <clears throat> The intention was simply to flatter. <laughs> Who's that? Me? To flatter the young lady that we traveled up in no, the elevator. No, she was very attractive. She looked very nice, and I'm still hale and hearty. I'm not, you know, I'm not dead. <laughs> so it's just admiration of her. Yes. I think she appreciated it. You think? Yeah. Good. 
When it comes to poetry, there's a dichotomy between the heart and the brain, the emotion and the intellect. And I wonder if there is a poem in this latest work, The Prodigal, your work, Derek Wolcott, that incorporates both in a way that you're happy with. There's poetry that can just hit you emotionally, obviously. Mm. And then there's poetry that is often written with an ulterior motive, a political agenda. Yeah. I wonder, is there a part of this latest work that does both in a way that you're particularly pleased with? And if so, could we? Well, it, it is one poem with a central topic must be returning, leaving and returning. And I think what I try to express in the poem is the increasing alienation of going away and coming back. Alienation away deepens the more you leave and the more you return. So Alienation from what? From your total claiming the home, claiming home. So the prodigal figure finally comes home in the fullest sense of home. And not to leave again and to, to be possessed by home, to be owned by home. And I think what I'm saying is if I keep moving, if I keep distancing myself both by distance and by feeling, then until I can really come home, I'm still a prodigal. That's, I guess, what the subject is, in a way. And then when you come home, you're coming home. If I look outside the window now, I can see, you know, this is Montreal, and there are tall buildings and everything. And if I look out now at a, a village in the Caribbean, it would be hugely different. As you know, physical division. And the fact, for instance, that one could be very much in love with, not in love, but say very much attracted to the reality of New York, as much as one could be to the village that I live near to in St. Lucia. So I have those two villages, Greenwich Village and the village of Groselais, for instance, that I live by. But ultimately, the homecoming has to be in one of them. When I speak of a homecoming, I'm speaking about going back to, to a village like Groselais. But I'm not part of it, you see. I, I'm well off, I'm not part of the poverty, you know, I'm still a visitor in a You're sense. You're a stranger in a way. In a way, yes. And so you're not a true. You're not a true inhabitant. What a, I'm a true inhabitant a in terms of the love of the place and the people, but I don't. I can't really claim it sufficiently. That's what I'm saying. Simply because of your life experience. Too much of a, dif uh, a difference, a gap, mm -hmm. in terms of experience. I mean, I am literate. I write. You I travel. Move in among exactly. illiterate people, but I'm not condemning them for that. As in fact, I don't believe there's any such thing as a real division between illiterate and illiterate. But this division exists, right? So one would like to reach them more, and in the effort of reaching, you write, you know. But in the same way that you write, you're alienating yourself because they can't read what you write, in a way. Mm -hmm. It's ambiguous. I think it may speak to what I... What we talked earlier about the fact that, uh, that I was born in Canada, yeah, right. moved to England at a fairly impressionable age, moved away from the Canadian experience, came back seven years later at age 12. I didn't play hockey. I couldn't skate like the others. <laughs> right, right. Which was terrible. Right, oh, right. In a way, as a boy then? A young as, as a young boy, yeah. uh, I left at five. Yeah, I think we forget how much suffering you go through as an adolescent or as a young boy. What appears to be absurd many years later, you know, something that hurt you, wounded you for a long time that you couldn't express or you knew but you wouldn't tell. 
a lot of that is subdued in us, you know. Do you find that, uh, to some extent, then, you've left your village? You've had a wonderful well, I wasn't life. A, I wasn't um, born in a village. I was born in a pretty... Castries. Yes, yeah. but it's not a village. It's a, no, no, it's a city. A town. It's a city now, if you want, yeah. It was the scale of a village when I was younger, but we never thought of it as that. We thought of it as a central town, you know. There's a capital. In <clears throat> yeah. But your life experience has taken you out of that. The other thing, too, which I've said uh, in another book, is you watch the development that happens, especially uh, with tourism, and you feel another life is going away. Mm. And whether you should lament that, because what you're lamenting is, it's as if, which I try to say in the other book, is as if you're happy that the poverty survives as opposed to change. In other words, why do you object to concrete when it's better for a house to be in concrete than it is virtually for a house to be in wood, maybe, you know? And whether that surrender is a kind of a patronizing affection, that's what you have to be careful about, whether you, you think poverty is um, artistic, you know? And if you're contributing to that, that's a serious uh, conflict. I think. It's Whereas you cherish the, you cherish the, in a sense, in the highest sense, in the Blakeian sense, you cherish the innocence of the people you're writing about. Not that they're illiterate. I'm talking about a, a genuine inside innocence about the landscape, the affection for the landscape, the, the strength of what their love is for the place that they come from, as opposed to the corrupting thing that happens from cities, which is terrible influence of American American society and goods and so on. And how, for instance, all the youth are affected by what they see and they go in a different direction. Now this is an old lament, but it's a frightening one because it has to do with how strong that influence can be in terms of what we just can commonly call values, you know, which can quickly go in young people influenced by either American music or by American Costumes, dress, whatever. Capitalism. Yeah. 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 Blake painted quite well too. Pretty good. Yes. <laughs> it adds quite a dimension to his work, doesn't it? And yours. Oh, Blake. Both of you paint and write poetry. I couldn't imagine hearing myself talking about Blake as if he and I were buddies. But in Blake, there's a direct, I think, relationship between, say, the proverbs or you know, songs of innocence or whatever, or the prophetic books and the drawing. It's as if the, those lines are manifested in line, and that's fine. That, you know, is like, it's not like illustration, but it's like ex the expression of the line is there in the musculature of Blake, a given kind of formulaic figure of an angel or a devil or a god. So it's related to the subject. The painting is directly derived from the subject. In my case, I don't, I hate to say that. It sounds stupid to say, in my case, talking about Blake, no. I have, to, I don't mean that. Um, I don't want a parallel. Stupid, you mean you, you don't think you're in his league? Oh. Absolutely. Even though you've got a Nobel Prize. No, but he didn't get, uh, as a guy said in the New York Times the other day about a review of my exhibition, if there were a Nobel Prize given for painting, I wouldn't get one. <laughs> that's that's subtle. So screw him, How did he, what did he know? <laughs> Was he an art critic or a literary critic? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I don't try to 
I, I think I keep the idea of painting separate from literature, that I don't try to do anything that is imaginative because I think it can lead to, it's egotistical in a sense to do that, I think. Why? Because that's not the medium. I mean, you can get away with bad drawing and indifferent painting by saying you're a poet and you're expressing yourself. Whereas what I'm saying is you should be a much better painter technically, a real painter, be a good painter rather than someone who has a lot of imagination and therefore draws or paints in a particular way peculiar to a poet. So I hate that. I mean, I just think, can the guy draw? Can he paint? I thought D.H. Lawrence was terrible. Awful painter. Bright, though. Uh, bright. A genius, but I'm saying... No, bright paintings, though. <laughs> like Churchill's. Exactly. So maybe like me. Joseph Brodsky said once about my work, he said, you know who you remind me of? The Russian realist. <laughs> Which is not a compliment. He didn't mean it to be a compliment either. <laughs> Is there one poem in your work that uh, made you cry once you'd finished writing it? Made me cry? Yeah, you you wrote it, you read it, and then you cried. Well, I think anything dealing with my mother, who had great endurance and has died now. Specifically titles? Do you have titles in mind? No. It's not that I'm touched by my work. It's just I think you relive the experience and the tribute that you're paying. But it could be about any other person as well. It's just think, I think it's depending on how close, obviously, the subject is, the person is to you, especially if it is an elegiac poem of some kind. So very often up on the podium, you might suddenly find yourself caught in a poem in which you're beginning to choke, you know? Sometimes, I guess like an actor, you have to go out there saying, yes, I have to play emotion, but I must not be emotional. And also to give a, re- a good reading, that's almost what you have to do. Otherwise, you just start sobbing. You know. Uh, it's interesting. I, I interviewed a well-known Indian poet. Her name is Nair, and I read one of her poems, and I found it a bit antiseptic. I asked her to read it, and I actually teared up listening to her read it. Yeah. It makes such a difference. I don't know why. Do you? Would you? Well, you can't separate the sound of the voice of the author of the poem from from the feeling in the poem. But, on the other hand, that's why actors often read poetry badly, because they try to bring a lot of outside emotion into it. It's uh, not there. It's the not there. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> Gilgood, and, you know, the best example is Gilgood doing the sonnets. Mm-hmm. You know, the big vibrato and so on. And, you know, shall I compare thee? You know, it's, it's not what the thing is, right? It's, it's more conversational. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps just in closing, if, if I could ask to hear your voice reading a selection out of your latest work, The Prodigal, a poem. Well, I haven't selected anything of you. Yeah. I haven't selected anything, but let's just flip it open to page 27 and start right in the middle. I'm get my glasses. Because it's all uniformly brilliant. Thank you. There is fine. It, it, maybe it isn't all uniformly brilliant. It, 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 there's some weak parts to it. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> is this what you mean? That would be great, yeah. yeah. I'm haunted very much by the death of my very good friend, Joseph Brodsky, who I love dearly and who died 
uh, young. Um, so th throughout my work, there's always uh, inevitably Joseph appears, and in this section, uh, he appears again uncontrollably. The presence is there. Absence's emblem, the solid specter of your grief. Yes, you can still see his tonsure, his ascetic halo. Till somewhere bars it, a hat or a sign. Then the mall fills with phantoms, serenely hurrying to the same exit, the arched doorways of a sunlight almost celestial. I silently shout their names, but I am inaudible to them since they outnumber me. To them I am the phantom, and they are the real ones. Their names still claiming them over the noise of waiters clearing the tables of their possessions, of the crumbs of bread and the glasses of recent blood still clouded with their one breath, the breath that I too will leave in a water glass to condense when I join them, following the pale tonsure of a moon that fades into the glare of the dawn outside the intricate and immense cathedral and our terrestrial traffic, the changing light. Within the circumference of the cathedral and its immense and bustling piazza and a long mall of cafes and shops, I saw him because I needed to, because a lengthening absence requires its apparition, lost, then returned again by the frothing crowd. I was not ready for the stone-webbed and incantation hallowed intricacies of the altars, an architecture like frozen fury demanding a surrendering awe. Derek Walcott, thank you very much for sharing your voice and your art and your ideas with us today. Thank you.